Well, good morning, church family. It's good to see you. And uh, man, we are a privileged people uh, to have worship like that just to help our hearts come to the place of just rejoicing in Jesus. And uh, man, what a, just a, a place to tee our hearts and minds up to consider uh, Jesus today as we look at John chapter 8 again and uh, look at him and we'll see him rise up even pulling off that last song as something greater uh, that I hope just stirs your soul and, and grabs you. But uh, uh, for those that I don't know, my name is Charlie. I'm privileged to be one of the pastors here on staff. And uh, yesterday was a wonderful day with CityServe. If you were one of those people that served, thank you so much for that. And we're grateful for the opportunity that God gives us to, uh, to serve in our community and to be present. And also thankful for uh, God just enabling and equipping us as his people to go as we uh, seek to make more and better disciples in neighborhoods and nations. But uh, again, grateful. It's always good to serve together, spend time together, and to see how God God multiplies that impact going forward. Uh, again, if you have your Bibles, grab John chapter 8 with me this morning. We'll be picking up in verse 48 here in a second. But we, we begin kind of around the thought of the word grace. And most of you know the word grace is receiving something for which you don't deserve or getting something that not only did you not earn it, uh, but you were actually probably do something different or there was a debt to be paid. And grace is this gift that comes swarming in that is just like, what do I do with this? You ever had a gift or something that was given to you and at the end of it, when you, when you received it, you were like, this is unreal. What do I do with this? So similar situation uh, happened in our neighborhood probably a couple years ago in that was reconnecting with one of my neighbors I hadn't spoke to for a while and we were just catching up how's life and so forth and one of the things that uh, my kids and I have just we just we're not huge car buff people but we just think cer certain cars are cool and this neighbor happened to uh, recently we had noticed in that time get a new sports car and that's not it by the way I, that's just the one I want one day but um <laughs> Anyway, no, but we'd see it go up and down the road, and I mean, just like any real nice sports car, you know, I mean, he just took good care of it. And I'm like, man, yeah, that thing, man, I wouldn't know what to do with your car if I had, that'd just be awesome. And just out of nowhere, pure genuineness, he goes, well, the keys are at the house. You can go drive it if you want. <laughs> no, you don't understand. <laughs> uh, no, I, I would probably drive it like I stole it kind of thing here. And uh, he's like, no, seriously, it's good, go. And my mind was just blown in that moment. I'm like, okay, first of all, who does that? I've got, you know, cars not equal to that. And I'm like, sometimes wondering. And at the same time, he's like, yeah, just take it. And I was just blown away in the moment. Yes, I did turn it down if you're wondering. Sorry. But, you know, it, it was just one of those moments of going, I don't deserve that. Like, are you kidding? Like, it was just nice to catch up for a second. And you're saying, no, I got to take it for a cruise. And yet, I think even in those, we've received in our lives at different times, these gracious opportunities or even invitations that when they were given, we were like, there's no way. Like, not only do I not deserve this, but this should not be headed towards me. Like, what do I do with this? And so today, when we look at John 8 today, 
Uh, we're going to be picking up, uh, really what, what is interesting about this is we're picking up in the middle of a major conflict that's been going on from the beginning of the chapter, and Jesus and the Jewish leaders are going back and forth with this debate of whether or not he's the son of God, he's trying to, uh, to teach them, he went from talking about I am the light of the world, uh, to saying if you know the truth, the truth is going to set you free, and then we come even to today as this conversation, this debate, and really was an all-out conflict, uh, reaches its peak in all of that. And so, one of the th- a couple of things I want to set us up for as we hear God's word this morning uh, that we'll see in uh, this conflict is that there's going to be three parts as we read through this passage that I want you to listen for, okay? One is, I want you to listen for, and I'll point them out to you, the blaspheming where they will seek to blaspheme Jesus, who he is, uh, try to tear him down, and so forth. The second piece will be his response. What does Jesus do with those blaspheme moments? And that is, listen for the truth. Okay, we'll be looking at the truth that he responds with. And then the final piece that we'll see in each of these sections is he's going to extend a gracious invitation. Only what's interesting is the invitation is not going to be like, hey, won't you come over for dinner this evening? But it's going to be as a result of the truth. And so uh, it'll be interesting for our hearts and our minds just to gather around this, what is a tense situation, but listening intently here and hopefully learning what it looks like to engage in these conflicts, but also how do we internalize the truth that is being presented to us. So with that, I invite you to grab your Bible, and uh, we're going to begin reading this morning from John chapter 8, verse 48. And here is the word of the Lord. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. Verse 55, But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we come to this time today and uh, Lord, just recognize, uh, Father, we need your help and your understanding for the truths that are before us. Uh, Father, we, we thank you that, uh, God, you, you sent your son, that you entered into these conflicts, these debates, these opportunities that we might see 
we might learn and that our lives might be transformed. But now, God, we ask that you would do that in us as we hear your word. Please, Father, I pray that you would communicate clearly through my mouth and give the, your word uh, soft hearts to land. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name and amen. Well, we, we've all been in conflicts that are similar to this one, ones that are debate back and forth. And for those of you that are, you know, you're not really lovers of conflict, you're the peacemaker, you know, conflicts like this might be what you ch- seek to live life to avoid. It's like, man, just anything to stay out of a conflict. Then there's the other side of you that we're, the other parts of you that in here that we're still praying for. Those are that are, you're like, is there a conflict today? Because I'm looking forward to it. Like you're the stick of dynamite that's just like, man, let's, let's uh, see if we can have some controversy here. And uh, what we find though in this today is this ramping up of this conflict that is going on as Jesus is spending time with these Jewish leaders in the temple yard. And the conversation has gone, as all conflicts do, they have four levels they progress through. And this will help us a little bit as we go. The first part is they, they begin intellectually. It's where the arguments are they're based in fact, they're based in truth. It's a swapping of ideas. The tones are somewhat agitated, but mostly it's um, just everything's getting along, going well. But if it goes on, a tendency can be that things then go to a descend to another level, and that is they begin to become emotional. And that is where we begin to feel passionate about our ideas or what we're expressing, so much so that the intellectual starts to fade in that we want others to believe what we're saying. And so we present it in that a little bit, maybe even, dare I say, that's where the argument can begin to grow. You've probably seen this in growing up in your homes, parent-child relationships, maybe a coworker, different places. But then there's another level that things go to, that where it can begin a descend, and that is towards verbal. And the verbal accusations, when the emotion is not believed, and then things descend to another level, towards verbal attacks. And then the final one is the final straw that where we see debates, and we can see this throughout culture, we see it throughout history even, where the, the final resting point, if conflicts aren't mutually settled or agreed upon the correct way, they can end physically where uh, things just come to being proven physically. But interesting enough, I've never known someone to become convinced of a truth because they were physically uh, changed by it. But at this point in our debate, though, what we see today is Jesus is in the place of the verbal attacks. It's gone intellectual, emotional, and now we're in the verbal attack stage. And throughout this exchange, what I, what I think is helpful for us to note is we, we see the Jewish leaders in this, pl- in this text, and, and they're emotionally charged. Like, you may read scripture and, and, and read it and everything kind of, you just hear your voice and reading it and so forth, but this is not a light matter. I mean, when you get to the end of the chapter and they're ready to pick up stones, like, there's some exchange going on here. But we see that from them, but what I want to encourage you to see in this is the steady but simple truth that we hear from Jesus. In that his response is steady, it's truth, and I believe it to be calm. And so, number one today, I want to invite us, though, as we listen for the invitations that are in the middle of an argument, which sounds counter at times, 
But listen for the invitations that exist here. The first one, the invitation to eternal life. Jesus is called a Samaritan and a demon. In verse 48, uh, we see the first, very first part of that. He's being called a Samaritan. This was essentially being called a Samaritan. It was a racist statement to a Jew. It was intended to verbally put Jesus in the lowest category of civilization. Samaritans were despised by the Jews and considered physical and spiritual half-breeds. They were descendants of Jews that stayed in the northern kingdom when it was conquered by the Assyrians. You can find it in 2 Kings chapter 17. And the Assyrians then... For the Jews that remained in the northern kingdom of Israel, what they did was the Assyrians sent some of their people who were pagans to live in the northern kingdom. Those pagans or the Assyrians and the Samaritans intermarried and then the generations to follow, they were considered even um, to have a demonic magic about them. And so for the Jew, they were not only considered not of the faith because they intermarried with pagans. But then even the spiritual lines of these were people that they were seen to follow demonic magic. And so for this accusation to be placed on Jesus was not just, hey, you're this. I mean, it was saying you are the lowest of the civilization. But we know from John chapter 4, Jesus was not a respecter of racial lines. He went to the Samaritan woman at the well. And there, even being the first place that he presented himself as the Christ. I love that, that that Jesus was so intentional to break down even those racial and cultural walls that others would see and recognize, no, the Messiah came for everyone. The second part, though, that the Jews are after is they call him a demon. They say he is a demon-possessed man. And it's, think about it. He's the son of God who's standing there having this conversation with these Jewish leaders to present himself in that way. And yet they're saying, no, you're not only not the son of God, you're possessed with a demon. It was the exact opposite of all that Jesus came to accomplish. He came to be the savior of the world and meant to deliver them from the kingdom of darkness. But ironically, the Jewish leaders were proving themselves spiritually blind in their own attacks. We must see, even very quickly recognize, this is how the kingdom of darkness works. Its goal is to tear believers down and to do anything to keep others from seeing Jesus as Lord. The spiritual blindness can be so obvious as debates rage and become irrational and turn to tearing a person down or seeking to ruin their life. We see this in our culture. There's not a peaceful middle ground to the kingdom of darkness. I think that's important for us to hear carefully, is that our enemy, spiritual enemy, does not desire a mutual agreement of any sort or a happy reckoning with a Christian. His goal is our destruction, to tear us down. Whatever it takes, whatever religion, whatever darkness, whatever ideology, he is no care of whatever religion we seek as long as it is not that of trusting Christ. Listen closely, my friends. Never do we see the response of Christ return the same accusations, but simply to present 
uh, the truth of what is. Listen to even 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23 says, When he, being Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. As believers, we are called to stand and speak with truth, but never to attack the person. Making someone's life miserable or hurting them for an ideology or a persuasion never persuades, but it is sin. We must hear that. The presenting and looking how Jesus does this. Look at the truth now. He's heard the blasphemies and now hear the truth that he presents. And, he, and the first question is this. How do you prove you don't have a demon? Like, think about it. If Jesus is there in that moment in the conversation, how would he go about? I mean, yes, he can say, I don't have a demon. He says that. But look then how he follows that up. He says, you point to the one that brings honor, brings your life honor. Jesus offers a calm and simple response of truth, revealing that he is living to bring honor and glory to his father. Look at verse 49 again. He says, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me, yet I do not seek my own glory. There's one who seeks it and he is the judge. He refutes both of the leaders' claims against him by saying he seeks the Father's glory and doing the work of God. This makes it impossible for him to be demon-possessed. God cannot have any part in sin. The Father can't have any part in sin. So wherefore, why would he be seeking to do the Father's work and to honor God the Father if he was a demon-possessed man? Had Jesus sought his own glory then he could have just remained in heaven, continuing in his perfect glory that he had from all eternity. Like to anyone that says Jesus was just a glory monger and just seeking for his own, just some guy looking around for, to create his own kingdom, let us not forget he has the ultimate glory. He had that and set that aside to come and be born in a stable, to come and live among his sinful creation to live the perfect life, and ultimately, as we know, to go and suffer a, a cruel and horrendous death. Jesus owes us nothing in response to these things. Jesus owes, he owed them nothing in response, he owes us nothing to prove, but it is his great love for us again that is displayed here in providing these answers. And even when we read this scripture, here it is, Jesus responding to them, but also setting the standard in responding to us. And he takes the claim one step further by saying that his father, who he, he is seeking to glorify, is the one who judges all humanity. He went from being accused to being a demon-possessed to saying, look, my father is going to judge you all. From the lowest to saying, I have the authority that sits right below the father. And he is going to be the one that judges you. And they can't see this because their spiritual blindness has set up the lie that they are the truth and everything else is a lie. Again, please see the way the evil one works right here. He so loves the statements that point to relevant truth. Relevant truth, just it's a meaning truth is established by each individual and is thus, that person is only responsible for the truth for which they accept. The enemy loves that. That is, that is such a falsehood of truth. This sets 
the person up as God of their life, relevant truth to us. It means that the only person, in essence, as we see lived out in culture at times, is the only person that is bowed down to is the one that we set up, or I say people that would believe in relevant truth would set up as God. And the scripture bears reality that there are truths that affect us all equally. One of those being that God the Father will judge each of our lives one day. A strong reality that even to consider as a, as a believer is something that just, it, it should cause us a little bit of fear to go, one day I will give an account. I'm accountable. But oh, let's look at verse 51. And we'll see the gracious invitation of eternal life right here. And he says in verse 51, uh, oh, forgive me. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Keeps my word, obeys my word. This means even as Jesus is called the word from John chapter 1, Jesus says they will not see death. This is our invitation to eternal life. He's presenting eternal life right there to his accusers. He's saying right here it is. If you accept this truth, if you understand who I am, if you follow the word, if you submit your life before me, repent of your sin, recognize who the Messiah is. And it may not seem like a feel-good invitation in the moment, like, oh, this is so gracious. But, oh, think about it, my friend. That there's nothing greater for us to receive than the truth. Like, think about that just for a moment. Like, the opportunity for us to come to the place of understanding something, whether we like it or not, but to go, this is what is true, is a gift. Because how much are we, how much of, are we tempted to live in what we know are lies? We're tempted by our flesh every day to find happiness in everything else that surrounds us, and yet we recognize it's a lie. These things don't hold up. And yet we see this gracious invitation that Jesus says, to him who keeps my word, he will not see death. This death, what's the death that he's talking about? It's not, it's not that they won't see a physical death. We, we know that we'll see a physical death, but it's but momentary. But there's a second death, and it's the one after the judgment that lasts for all eternity. Look in Revelation 2.11 sometime and see that there are, that God does tell us there will be judgment in eternity. And Jesus is offering the opposite of death. He's offering life. Like, and I get it. If you've sat in these chairs or in any other church before, you've heard this. But may we just reckon in our souls for just a second how the choices of our lives and how we handle God's word and obey it and submit to it have a direct effect on how we respond to that truth of the eternal life or the eternal death. Heaven and hell are real, my friends. And it's the grace of God that not only continues to grant us another day to consider it, but even presents the opportunities before us to say, Father, I repent and recognize of your goodness. Simply stated from this series, it means to believe in God and to live it. And Jesus' response to the Jewish leaders, though, it does nothing to calm them. In fact, it exasperates them <clears throat> further to where we find them going to the next level. 
But in it, we still see another gracious invitation of our Lord, and that is to know God. Look in verse 52, if you will. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? And by the way, he died. How ironic that the spiritual leader of God's people could not see spiritually, but only saw what they knew was humanly possible. In this moment, Jesus is refusing to back away from the conflict that has obviously turned abusive towards him. And their blasphemy is that Abraham was seen as the father of the Jewish faith. And they're asking, are you greater than him? A little quick history of Abraham. He was the man God made his covenant with in Genesis 12 too. The very covenant that they, the Jewish leaders, were holding to, but completely missing that they were standing in the moment of the covenant's fulfillment. Like, does anybody see irony right there? Like, everything they had been holding to and waiting for was before them, but their faith had become so ritualized that they lost in recognizing the very fulfillment of that covenant. And by still seeing Jesus as a crazy, demon-possessed man, they were challenging the physical limitations of Jesus being that old and then also being greater position than Abraham. Again, listen to how Jesus responds with grace and provides truth. He illustrates to us how we are to respond in such a debate. Look at verse 54, if you will. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. Of him you say, he is our God. Jesus continues to point out through our text here that it is his knowledge and focus to live for the glory of the Father that sets him apart. This means that any glory that is happening in Jesus' life on earth is a result of the work the Father is doing through him. It's such an incredible moment. The Holy Son of God is displaying how he set aside all of his own glory, his position in heaven to come to earth in all humility in order to be glorified again by the Father. A glory, by the way, he already had. And these claims of being secure in God were not of a demon or a maniac because his glory was not in evil, but in the divine. Please see that. We all wish the enemy would just drop and surrender at points like this, don't we? Like, man, Satan, it'd be awesome. Just give up. Godliness is the room. But what happens? We see throughout our lives, culture, evil one doesn't back down. In fact, the fight often intensifies and comes back with even greater vengeance, hoping to break down the believer. And there are times where we hold on and wait for God to be glorified. Christian, hear this. I don't know what the trials that you live with in your life, the debates you have, whether it be with coworkers, lost family members, where you go, places that you seek to do ministry. But this passage rings true if, if you've been in those conversations in those places and you know the enemy is, is real and the attacks are real. But may we never get caught up in creating or seeking to obtain our own glory. But may it be that we find humility in resting in truth that says, God, 
Unto you I submit my life. May you be glorified. May it be that this world sees Jesus through me. So the real truth that Jesus is putting before these men, though, is that they would easily recognize him if they knew God. Look at verse 55. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Jesus is giving the difference between being religious toward God and having a relationship with God. He presses this point of knowing God by rightfully referring to the religious leaders as liars. He's saying, look, the truth isn't in you. You cannot know God. If you knew God, you would know me. You would know what is supposed to be. And the fact of it is, listen, please listen with your ears closely here. The fact of the truth is, many of us, we know how to practice church a little bit. We know how to go through the motions. But oh, it's the truth of, not do you know in the facts, but do you know the character of God? Do we know what it is to have the heart of God? Do we see his heart? Have we obeyed the truth of the word enough that we would understand right from wrong because we know the character of God? God invites us to know him. He's made himself available. To know him, we have his word, we have the Bible, we have the opportunity to pray. Something that still at this point, people still had to go through priests at the temple. Ladies and gentlemen, let's not forget that when our Lord died on the cross, the veil of the temple was torn. We have access to the Holy of Holies. Man, I... I, I stand before you as one who's guilty of not being in his presence enough. And even ashamed that it would come to the place where maybe we just have grown numb to the opportunity of being before the Lord that we take it for granted. And we see these leaders, they were were good religious folk. In fact, they sat on such a high horse, they went around making judgment statements to others. They were the ones that went to judge others and now Jesus is here saying no not only I'm not a liar you're a liar and oh by the way you're not the ultimate judge but he further explains that not only did Abraham see the time of Jesus coming in other words referencing back to Abraham for them making the cultural connection he said but Abraham saw this time coming and he rejoiced Hebrews eleven thirteen gives us that picture of how Abraham and the patriarchs, some of them, they saw the future coming. They recognized the fulfillment of the covenants that God made with them was to come true in Jesus. And it says, not only did Abraham see this time and see the Messiah coming, but he rejoiced in it and he was glad. They were continually verbally assaulting and at this they were ready to kill the very one, again, I can't get past this, the very one in whose coming Abraham rejoiced. And it was these Pharisees claimed to know him, but what they know are the details of performing their religion. (laughs) They missed the best part. (laughs) They missed the best part. Like, they're so worried about getting the religion right that they missed knowing God. And look at the invitation, the unbelievable invitation here to know God. 
May we not miss the privilege that it is to know and have access to the God of the universe who invites us to know his character, who's made himself available and says, come see my power. Know the plans that I have for you, what the future is. Know me. We're so consumed with knowledge and having the upper hand in our details and conflicts that we completely miss the simplicity to know and be known by Almighty God. Jesus points to Abraham as knowing and rejoicing about the day when Christ would come. And we have this same privilege to rejoice and look with anticipation towards the eternity that God has promised. This isn't hidden information, but is ours if we would not just be hearers of this word, but be doers of it. No doubt, it is and should be intimidating to know God. It should be a holy thing, something we go, you know what? If, if I seek God, then that means I've got to accept him as truth. And to accept him as truth means that when Jesus came and died, that was for my sin and I can't save myself, which means there's a level of submission that comes through this. Like, like I get it. There's, there, there's a, a mental hurdle right there. And one that when we get to the core of our heart, we just, we reject and there's a, rebe- there's a human rebellion that just goes, I, I can't release all that. You don't ask, know what you're asking. But Jesus again reveals the ability we have to know God. And the cool part of this truth is God is God whether we choose to accept that truth or not. Whether we say God doesn't exist, I don't believe in him, it it doesn't change the truth of that. And I want to submit to you, friends, that the truth is before us and it can be known. It can be sought. It's been proven. It's stood a a test of time and ultimate scrutiny. Now, you may ask at this point and question, why is Jesus even still pursuing this debate? I mean, you look at chapter eight. It's not a long chapter. I mean, it's fairly long. And this conversation, why is he staying in this when we can see in a moment he can remove himself at any point? And I offer you you possible two reasonings here that I think speak to us. Number one, grounded biblical truth will often agitate the hearts of those that are in spiritual darkness. However, the truth must be presented. Now, this is not a promotion to engage in debate or to provoke conflict, but is an encouragement to speak steady truth even in the face of adversity. We know how the Holy Spirit is at work in the moments, but... You know what? We can never know how he's working in hearts around that time or in the future in contemplation. The second thing, we see it in verse 30 of this passage, and that is there were people standing around listening. And in verse 30, it says, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Did the Jewish leaders? No. But there were people around taking notice of what was being said and what was going on. And can I tell you, we live in a time where never in the course of history have more eyes ever been on us, whether physically or virtually. Folks, we know the world is always listening. Take heed how you carry yourself, how you respond in such conversations. But recognize, even if you go, man, it it didn't end well. You never know how the Lord will use those seeds that are planted. There's always someone watching. 
But we look at our last point here. What is our third invitation? And it's our invitation to trust Jesus. And look how he lays this out. How can we trust him? He's, the, the blasphemy that comes before him is they say, look, you're not even 50 yet. Choice of words telling us several things about the Jewish culture. Now, if you're 50 or older, uh, I've, I've got an exciting word for you, okay? This is, you're going you're gonna to wish you lived in this time, all right? When you hit 50 years old, you were said to be about retirement age, and uh, you were also considered fully mature, all right? You had arrived, 50 years old, and it was looked at as, man, this was it. The Levitical priests, even at 50 years old, began fading out and handing off their leadership. So in essence, what the Jews are saying to Jesus right now is, hey, you're not even fully mature. In essence, they're stepping in and going, listen here, young fella. You know, you you think you got some answers and you know what's going on. You need to listen up. You're not even a full wisdom and knowing what is happening. It's the peak of the tension. As, as even when you read it, there's exclamation marks, there is anger, there is some verbal assault coming here. And all at Jesus, and look again as he responds with truth. And you'll see it as in uh, verse 58 here. And I want you to notice, you, you've heard it, and I think you've heard Pastor Ryan mention it, but when you see the words truly, truly that show up in the book of John, shows up 25 times throughout the book, it is intentional to not only draw our attention, but to point out, hey, this is new. This is, this is fresh info right here, John was saying to the, the people he was writing to and to us. This is, this is to be believed. This is, hey, truth, truth right here, double infinitive here. So he says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Two tiny little words that when we read it and take hold of that, it probably sends a small shot of fear through you. When you recognize he just answered a past tense with a present and inferred all of it. Jesus claimed for himself the most sacred name of God, that being Yahweh. This language from Jesus echoes God's own self-identification to Moses in Exodus 3.14. It is a name that not only establishes the eternality of Christ, but his pre-existence to Abraham. Jesus rightfully claimed to be both time and status that is greater than Abraham or any other created being. He is God in the flesh. And the Jews certainly would not let such a blasphemy go as was afforded to them in the law from Leviticus chapter 24. Anyone that falsely claimed to be God was worthy of being stoned to death. And so they sought to pick up stones and to kill him. But Jesus removed himself. But let's, let's stay in this great I am for a moment and see what was the gracious invitation that was there. Jesus provided the moment for the Jews to once again recognize and behold their king and to see and behold the Messiah. And yet it was their spiritual blindness that forbid them from seeing it. And they had already determined the truth of God was supposed to, what the truth of God was supposed to look like and that Jesus was not it. 
And in the middle of such attention, these Jewish leaders were extended the grace of having Jesus declare himself right before their eyes. Some of us have made the argument, what would it take for you to believe in Jesus? Well, if he were to stand before me and to say, I am Jesus, I'll believe because I could see him. Folks, we have the most religious of their day and they were ready to kill him. I'm not so sure we'd be sharp enough to catch it either. But may we hear the truth of God's word and see what he puts before us that in the middle of all this, there's that invitation to us to accept the truth about Jesus. And here's the truth I'm asking you to consider accepting. And when I say trust Jesus, I, don't, I, I do mean trust him with your life, but I mean this, especially for those that doubt the existence of Christ. I'm asking you to think hard and consider the truth that not only does Jesus exist, he existed in the form of being 100% God, 100% man. He is the Messiah. It is this place that separates all other religions from Christianity. It is why in every religious conversation, everyone can agree around the topic of God, but when you get to the person of Jesus, it is the pivotal moment upon which you find out where salvation lies. It is because at this place, man can no longer be God if they accept the truth that Jesus is the son of God. But if you keep Jesus out of it, then there's the ability to still control. Isn't that amazing? But yet right here we have Jesus going, no, not only are you wrong in this, before Abraham was, I am. I was there at the beginning. I was there at creation. And I'm standing before you now. And I present even to us today, it is that king that stands before us and just says, I am. The temptation though is to respond the way the Jews did and to only look with our physical and earthly eyes. And our minds, we, we, we've become so caressed and entangled in the things of this world to believe that honestly, and, and I know we struggle with this doubt, but, but been tempted to believe that we're a better God for our life than to walk in faith with Christ. We've been teased to believe that the temptations on the screen of our devices deserved because of the lack of fulfillment we experience in various areas of our lives. We've been teased to believe that our personal security is found in the happiness of our daily life rather than in the promises of eternity. Oh, folks, may we be guarded that we look at our physical life and say, this, I've got to make this the best. This earth was not designed to be heaven. This is not it. And when we come convicted to the place that believing that the unhappiness or bad things in our life is God just wanting to make good people miserable. So we'll just refuse to believe in him. And the problem is none of these things are truths that we find supported by God or his word. We find them in man's assumptions and sometimes beliefs, but we don't find them lived out factually. And the Jews responded the way many in our world and perhaps maybe some of you feel today, and that is perhaps some of you feel like responding to God. And they picked up stones to throw at him and said, I'm not gonna have you as part of my life. I'm gonna take your life. We live in a culture that looks to silence at any cost that which it disagrees. 
And most specifically, if we're rebellious and hard-hearted to the Lord, we're looking to silence his voice in our life because if it goes quiet, I'm not accountable to it. And I encourage you to hear, friend, that too is a lie because even the truth of that is still at work whether or not we're resonating with it. And so in all of our rebellion and our hardness of heart, Jesus still graciously invites us as he poured out here with these truths. He invites us to accept eternal life. There's an invitation to know God. (laughs) What a thrill. And to trust that Jesus is the true son of God. He is the one who died for our sin. Oh, Believer or unbeliever, I ask you today, oh, to take hold of these invitations. If you never have for the first time to consider the truth that Jesus is the Son of God, sure, take it on. Try to refute it. But I'll tell you, Scripture holds up well. And the truth will not be denied. If you're a believer, I encourage you, press in deeper to our Lord. If there is unconfessed sin in your life, or you found yourself backing away, may I exhort you even today to press in and to know God, to confess that sin, and to once again say, Jesus, I trust you. I trust you for all that you are, for all that I need. Oh God, may it be that God would soften our hearts, get our pride our arrogance, may he remove those things that we would be soft and pliable to hear that when Jesus stands before us, we'll be able to clearly recognize him. Let's pray together. Lord, we're, again, we we just recognize we're unworthy. Father of what you've given to us, Lord, such grace, such grace, God. We're thankful. I thank you so much for your son. God, I thank you that you loved us enough to send your son on our behalf. And Lord, I pray for everyone that can hear this message, Father, that it would be our hearts that would be stoked to know and to love you more. God, for that one right now that is walking in doubt and yet right now is feeling conviction and, and, and just crying out with a testing and saying, God, prove yourself. Lord, I pray that you would. I pray that you, you would grant them even now a mind of belief and faith that says, I see the truths, I hear the arguments, and I accept Christ. Father, I pray, I pray for the believers, Lord. I pray that you would grant us a tenderness, God. These truths we've heard before. Yet, Father, today, Lord, may the reality of who you are bring us to a fresh realization of who we are before you. Please, Lord Jesus, may we not leave this time or this place without accepting your invitations to us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your love and your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.